Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's episode, we're speaking with Keyson Patel, CEO of M&A Science. Mergers and acquisitions are an integral part of building businesses. It can be just for growth, strategically as a protective measure, or an aqua hire to quickly access talent for building out a section of the business. But as you'll hear, deal fever and rose-colored glasses can lead to poor decision-making. And oftentimes, once a deal is done, the promised synergies don't materialize. Keyson has a very interesting view on this. He suggests that the success of a deal is built on the people integrating it once the deal has been signed. Further, he speaks to how taking a more empathetic approach to combining two entities can lead to better outcomes. This is an enjoyable and thought-provoking interview. And before we get started, I want to say thank you to our sponsor, Olympia Trust Company. Olympia is an outstanding provider of transfer agent and corporate trustee services and has been supporting the Canadian capital markets for well over 20 years. I can speak from experience that the team strives to deliver on their promise of making it personal. So thanks again to the team at Olympia Trust Company, and I encourage you to reach out to them at any time. You can find their contact information in the show notes. Now, enjoy the show. And before we get started, I'm happy to host this episode with the support of Olympia Trust Company. Olympia is an outstanding provider of transfer agent and corporate trustee services and has also been a supporting member or part of the Canadian capital markets for well over 20 years. I can speak from experience that the team strives to deliver on their promise of making it personal. So thanks again to the team at Olympia Trust Company, and I encourage you to reach out to them anytime. You can find their contact information in our show notes. Now enjoy the show. Kisan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Corey. I'm looking forward to our interviewers. When we connected, I, I did some research on your background and all the work you do in and around mergers and acquisitions. And that's a broad topic. And also the, the, the work and the publications you put out about it are super informative. So I think we're going to have a good conversation here. Look forward to it. Yeah. The best place to start is with us to get an introduction from yourself. And then we'll build from there. So if I, I'm going to hand it over to you. And can you give us some background? Sure. Kisan Patel, CEO and founder of m Science. We're a business made up of um, about six different business lines, all related to corporate M&A. So we essentially help support corporations that are doing acquisitions, make their process more efficient so they can create a better experience for the people involved and extract more value out of their deals. And how did you come to this? That's a good question. I, I think it started way back, probably started before that, when I failed out of undergrad in college. I struggled with a little bit of a learning challenge and just having a very short tension span. It wasn't for me. I ended up starting from the bottom with a little retail job. Wanted to pursue a real estate career. Failed at that. Ended up picking up a gig for a little startup 
that was creating an M&A advisory practice. The founder sold his business to McDonald's and wanted to build this consulting practice to help people buy and sell businesses. And uh, I joined it uh, in my 20s. And it's where I first started getting some traction. Like I liked the idea of looking at financials, building a narrative of where the opportunity is within those financials and selling businesses that way. And it resonated with me. I worked at that firm for a year. And after a year, I thought, probably thought like with a bigger ego that I could do this better. And went and started my own practice in downtown Chicago. Ran that for about 10 years. Started from the bottom, little businesses privately held. Started doing work a few years in with larger corporates when I did hospitality. Worked with brands like Kimpton, Extended Stay America. And then got into working in the financial institution side with regional banks to help them acquire other banks and help small community banks sell. That led up to the recession in 2007. I wanted to get into tech. I feel like I was getting burnt out or hit the ceiling in terms of the size of deals I could work on as an independent. And I worked on a startup that failed miserably, but it exposed me to the way software engineers would utilize project management tools that had me reflecting back to my experience in M&A, I kept thinking, why isn't there a project management tool for M&A? And that's what led to the inspiration to start Deal Room, our first product in 2012. Went through a bunch of more founder mistakes to figure out how to work with the engineering team productively, how to find product market fit, how to go to market. And about five years in, I got a friend in marketing was came to me one day and said, hey, man, you should do a podcast. And I was like, what the hell is a podcast? I had no idea. I thought, I'll, I'll give it a shot. What do I got to lose? And that evolved into a whole digital media business that we run today that publishes all kinds of content, blogs, ebooks, books. And then we've been able to spin off another tech product off of our core product and create an online school for those people that want to learn M&A whether they're seasoned or brand new to the industry. And then it just keeps going on. You find new problems in the industry. Can we build a solution? Take it to market. Yeah. I've got such a smile, man, because like I followed a very similar path. Diagnosed dyslexic, failed out of school, was able to scramble into a uh, an undergrad program, got a, a, D rate, a, a D average from a C-rate institution, and then fumbled into finance. and it kind of took off and it's it's been a wonderful career and, and been surrounded by some very interesting people in, in the space and learned a ton. I had my ass handed to me in a couple of startups, won some, lost some. And anyway, what a, what a great story and a great way to come to where you are. And But we're, we're in audio, we're doing video as well, but I, I absolutely encourage all the listeners to check out your website and the content you have there. It's I was blown away. Like it's a great media site about such a fascinating niche. So good on you. I'm fortunate. I got a great marketing team that puts all of it together. So we start out with a series of questions to kind of guide our interview. And your introduction here has me wanting to throw all those out and start diving into the areas where the experiences you've had. Before we go too far into it, how about talking about mergers and acquisitions it's like if I told you I was a doctor, you'd go, okay, yeah, of what? It's so broad when we talk about M&A. 
where do you work? Where are your clients and, and what is the what is the bite size? What's that all look like? For us, we are very corporate focused. So that's where when I talk to context in general M&A, it's like, okay, let's let's break this down into simple forms. And you'll hear me use a lot of analogies like buying and selling a house. But for our core business, we work with corporate M&A. These tend to be larger multinational corporations. Their M&A is part of their core strategy. They're acquiring multiple businesses a year. And the industry itself is pretty stagnant. A lot of the practices and processes haven't evolved much in the last 20 years. And that's where we come in. We come in where we've had this model that evolved from doing a series of podcast interviews where we are essentially crowdsourcing best practices and being able to document that. And we've actually published frameworks and how do you manage M&A to be efficient and, and as possible. And, and then we take that information and it helps shape the technology we build around it to make it easier to standardize those best practices. Yeah, very interesting. I think there's a there, there's a there's a bigger shift in the industry too. And I don't know if it makes it simpler to explain or more complex, but you think of traditional M&A, it's always been very finance oriented. Can you build the model and a story with it to get the board on on board and, and allocate the capital to go buy this company? And what the industry is waking up to is that it all it's all about what happens after you close the deal, how you integrate this business, how do you generate value? And that hasn't been a clear area of focus. And we've seen this historic correlation or, or related to the high failure rate in M&A. But it's, 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 more, it's where the, the industry now is shifting to this people-focused approach. How do you really drive alignment from the beginning of these deals? Because it does. M&A starts with this vision of innovation, but then it ends with a lot of chaos, confusion, frustration, blow-ups, yeah. and the value, intended value doesn't get captured. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. How Let's, do you better focus on the people? At the end of the day, if, I, if I'm buying your company, Corey, and we're going to merge together, you know, we might get along or you might just be incentivized by the, the, the digits on the check I'm going to offer you. But for us to truly make this work, our teams need to come together as one company and really get along. And if we have some stark differences where I'm operating on a very top-down management style, you're operating on a very much of a bottoms-up management style, that's not going to naturally come together. There's going to be some differences that may create some friction or even conflicts. And that's where if we can start thinking about that earlier about what are the respected values of our companies? What does that mean? So we can better understand the culture, the leadership styles. And that that helps us get a sense of how we're going to align our organizations to really come together and work together. Can we paint this vision of what's that going to look like? Because ultimately, we both exist to serve our customers. But as we come together, we're going to be introducing a new go-to-market, a new experience for that customer. Are we talking through that and thinking through that before we sign paperwork to, to get a deal done? I, I think that's the big thing that's really shifting now is that earlier thinking about what that go-to-market is going to look like with that customer's perspective, earlier thinking about what, what our cultures are like and how that's going to come together. Uh, and then that expands into a lot more planning up front on how things are going to get done once we close the deal. So once we do close, we're ready to hit the ground running. We're ready to make sure we can act on 
these value creation activities, integrate our businesses together, have our teams aligned, properly incentivized, so they're motivated and excited about this acquisition as an opportunity and not creating a bunch of FUD where people are more concerned about if they have a job or not, what's going to happen. Are they taking these calls from other recruiters that are reaching out to them? That's so interesting. I, I'm going to reflect on my, my first foray into the, to the business. And I was working with a, like an internal M&A department, 10,000 person company. We were a team of seven and reported directly to the C-suite. And we would sit behind models and just crunch numbers and look for what's going to be an accretive deal and then sit there and put together a narrative for the, for the board and the management team of why it's going to be a great deal and get, up, get the bankers all frothing. The bankers are, are pumping up the management team. And there was no consideration about integration and making sure that there's a cultural alignment. And it was just, here's an accretive deal, jam it in. And then was it ever really accretive? And could you ever look back and actually go and do that analysis and really prove it out? Or would you just look and say, shit, this isn't really working. So you'd spin it off as a, you know, a market narrative and try to forget the acquisition was done. And so, so hearing what you're saying is, is fascinating. I'm curious about what those conversations are like and how receptive management teams are in, in, in large corporations when considering an M&A path that is more almost subjective than the objective numbers of, does the deal make sense in a spreadsheet? I think it depends on their experience. If they've never done a deal before, they sort of default to the first time around. If they've done a couple deals before, they're more akin to listening to some of this stuff, to the ideas, to trying to figure out ways they can do things better. There's probably some clear things on top of mind that they've experienced before where they've seen things go awry. And that that's where it gets easier to talk through what are the approaches that could be changed to have more of a people focus as opposed to purely looking at the financials. Right. And what are those, if there's a, a top three things, do you see that are most often issues that arise from, from a transaction? The end state, where are you actually going with this? What, what are ultimately you trying to achieve? What does that end state look like? And can you really crystallize it and bring that vision to the forefront of the deal and socialize it between the executives so they know exactly what the game plan is? And it's not purely a transactional, I'm going to buy your business for X amount of dollars, but there's actually a, a real goal or vision behind this. I, I think that's first and foremost. And that that lends to that go-to-market I mentioned. Can we start outlining what that go-to-market is going to look like? What, what's it going to look like from the customer side? What, what's that customer experience going to look like? Get this early thinking of what are what's the go-to-market going to look like between our organizations? How are we going to come together and deliver this value to the customers? Are we um, cross-selling this? Are we leveraging your distribution? Is it focused on ours? Are we we don't want surprises. You know, if the plan is we just want the technology and we're going to flush out the the sales team, then that's that's what it is. So I think being really transparent and clear on that as you start shaping that that go to market. And that go to market should evolve into this work stream for integration planning that works right along diligence because everybody gets fixated on diligence, but can we as we do diligence keep iterating on that integration plan? And then that, that other third leg would be with the values, having real alignment around values and culture between both organizations. So you have a clear understanding. You may come across things and get a sense of, hey, this is 
things that we should be considerate about and how we're going to integrate, maybe get a sense of how much to integrate. You're doing a full integration, partial integration, not integration at all, completely transformation. And then I think it, it helps shape that, but it, you may also come across some real red flags that could steer you away from doing the deal. It's better to know that and walk away from uh, the bad deals and call it the biggest wins than to go through with it. So what I'm hearing about point two that you point there, diligence and the integration is actually having a simultaneously having communication between really, I, I'm going to call it the banking team or the, uh, the finance, the internal finance team who's doing the deal. And those who have their feet on the ground and are actually going to put together the integration and bring these two organizations together, instead of just living in silos, bringing them together. So there's a communication and the ball starts moving together is what I'm hearing. Yeah, absolutely. Because there's always a big emphasis on we got to do the diligence to get the deal done. But can you create a process that's more programmatic to plan for integration while you're doing diligence? And you actually enable some of those leaders that are doing diligence to actually start mapping things out, make an outline of what do we need to think about on how we're going to integrate this company. Yeah. And that, that way, once they get closer to close, they're more or less hashing out these details with the company they're acquiring, getting set aligned, set on expectations, and they're ready to execute. When you don't, you're figuring this stuff out late in the process and you don't have that level of clarity that you typically would when you take the traditional approach, which is you know, maybe you get a heads up a few weeks beforehand instead of trying to push this as early as possible. Yeah. Oh, interesting. It makes a lot of sense there. Having seen, I imagine you've seen a lot of deals and, and keep your, your finger on the pulse of the world of M&A. And I mean, especially when I think about private equity right now, there's just been so much money in the market. Deals are getting crazy valuations being bought up here and here and here. When you look at, at M&A transactions, do you have any that stick out to you? Where you look and you go, that was a deal done well. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I think of some deals I personally worked on. It's always the ones that were the crazier deals that you think of. Yeah, well, hey, maybe it wasn't done well. Maybe there's a big mistake there. Something that, that was just a huge learning experience or something to reference. Yeah, I just, the deal, I think one big takeaway, I think of the deal never dies, right? Like I remember one deal I worked on and this thing just was on... Then it was called off. It was on and it was called off about five freaking times. Mm. And uh, I gave up on it completely and said, all right, it's done. And then I think it was about six months later, a partner of mine in the practice I ran picked it up and actually closed this deal. Yeah. And it was, it was, yeah, it's just, I, I, it's just funny. These things, you got to persist on them and be relentless to get deals done. There's some where you just are, it's really interesting. What I enjoy about M&A is learning about all these different companies and just seeing how they operate, how they're structured. You could be in one industry and go company to company and just completely different, completely different management style, completely different setup. It doesn't look the same at all. You know, maybe a franchise business might look similar, but if you're looking at, at typical businesses, uniquely different. And then some are just interesting things where in terms of uh, how professional of a management, when you get to these smaller private company deals, that uh, you find some really interesting stuff. A lot of 
personal expenses through there. Just a lot of things like that. A lot of, you know, who's on the payroll or who's this person. You can't find them, but there's somebody's getting paid and they're not anybody that works out of the office. Yeah, you, you see some interesting things. I think with these larger public company deals are different. You know, there's definitely a lot more red, red tape involved and things are buttoned up. Some of the notable deals, I, we just seen some interesting things when you go from one end of working on these smaller private company deals where the clients are just, they're, they're not running a professional business. You got to help them. You got to guide them to prepare their business for serious buyers to look at their company. That's a big part of the work when you're we're dealing with that. When you're dealing with a public company or larger transactions, just the level of sophistication in the people you're working with is there, but the complexities can get pretty interesting. We have a client that acquired a business and they're carving out two business lines out of their own company and integrating it to this other business. So just seeing things like that where it gets you thinking uh, and you're sort of exposed how they're kind of triaging the, the market valuations that favor the tech companies as opposed to traditional businesses. That's that. I think that also is something where a couple of things I see. One, on the smaller side with smaller companies, one of our past guests, his name is Brent Holiday, uh, advises companies on, on tech sales. So he is on the buyer or on the seller side. And his his statement is that buyers are liars. And they're going to take you and they're going to, you know, especially for smaller organizations where you don't have that that level of professionalism or experience in going through a transaction, they can butter you up and tell you how great of a business you built and then just give you the cold shoulder the next day and take you down a roller coaster. And it can it can really either impact the deal or impact the company because it's a months long process to go through a, a transaction. It's I mean, I would hundred percent have somebody that's done it before. Like you don't necessarily have to get a banker. You could get a really good lawyer that's done M and A before or somebody that that's managed it from that executive type of level that would be well worth it if you're doing M&A because it tends to be the largest transactions that you work on. I my my favorite deals are always the ones the hunting part. I think that's the part I was most passionate about was yeah, cuz I remember I started off like a lot of others selling businesses and that tends to be where you make most of the money. But then I, I built a practice as this outsourced corporate development where I'd help organizations do the search, find companies and, and help them close on those deals. And I, I remember some of those good ones where you just really put that effort in, that extra effort, find the phone numbers, dig it around, talk to the staff, go over to the site and talk to the staff to get the cell phone number of the owner of the business, call them while they're on vacation and saying, hey. You ever thought about selling your company here and get, you know, getting that deal done? Yeah. And that, I think those are like the most rewarding parts of doing M&A. And I don't know. I feel like that gets lost. I've, a lot of the firms I talk to, they're so reliant on the investment banks to bring them deals, to find some outlet, marketplace, website, or whatever to look deals, but to really do the research to say, hey, I'm going to hone in on the sector. I got this thesis that this area is the one I want to focus on. I remember the specialized healthcare businesses was an area I was doing actively doing searches on. It's like, this is unique. They got great margins. There's not a lot of other people paying attention to this space. I would build a narrative. I'd reach out to the owners of these businesses, 
I think this is a lesson I learned. I used to reach out to people, Corey, and I was like, how much do you want to sell? Uh, I was asking, is your business for sale? Right. And people would always hang up. They're like, nope, <laughs> click. Right. And after a while, I, I, I learned was like, don't ask if their business for sale. I asked them, how much will you sell your company for? Uh, just, you know, you know, is everything. Then after a while, I, I realized if you come up with this narrative and explain like, hey, listen, I'm, I'm a, you know, a newer entrepreneur. I'm really interested in this, this specialized healthcare space. You're a veteran in the sector. You know, I just wanted to reach out to see if you know of any opportunities I can invest in. And that's the, it, it opens things up in a nice way because sometimes they may say, hey, go talk to Doug who runs blank, blank company. Don't tell him you heard anything from me. Click, right? And we're like, okay, you got some insight there. Or if they're interested in selling their business, they'll, they'll speak up about it and say, hey, why don't you come over so we can talk about it? Uh, and I, I found that like increased from 1% to 3% hit rate on, on those kind of outreaches. But yeah, I just, I don't know. I noticed it sounds that, like, like you're that lost. nostalgic and, and you missed that hustle. Yeah, I get a little bit of it. We get to chase down these corporations. To It's not the same. You know, I, I think it's a little more exciting when you're really talking to that, especially a founder-led business where they they could be at different phases. They could still be at that, hey, I'm, I'm really, and you know you have to nurture that and it, be empathetic to that person to get a sense of where are they and be helpful if you can because you can still maintain a relationship and hey, you know what, this other person I know may be a potential customer or vendor for you. Would you like me to make an introduction? And then at least maintain that relationship, check in, and, and you, you, you never know. You can still, hey, I'm working with so-and-so. I know you're not interested to sell, but I think you should hear their offer out. You know, It may, it may be something where it could be timing the market in your favor and give you an opportunity to still do something else here. So yeah, yeah I think so. I, I do like that part. With a business, that is unique. Yeah. Can we talk about building narratives? You've touched on that a couple of times. And when it comes to raising capital or engaging investors, there's almost kind of set ways you go about it. Let's use let's use raising capital for a startup. And you know, the first three slides, it's almost like this is the this is the story arc. The first three to five slides, if it's not that way, you're failing to communicate the the story properly. When it comes to building the narrative for some for a transaction, is there a formula you have? Is there a best way to go about it? What have been the, the best narratives you've seen? Yeah, I don't know if there's like a super tight framework. It's, it's always the big picture. The company always has some direction they're striving to go. And if you can spend the time to really understand that, then it allows you to say, okay, here's this company we can buy. How does it fit into that picture? How does it help us achieve this big picture goal? I think that's where M&A, the startup stuff, I'm probably not the best at. I feel like I've, I've never had a big successful raise. In the early days, I went out a few times to raise capital, came back with one term sheet that was so depressing. I said, well, you know, I'd rather sell a limb than and go take this offer. So I ended up putting additional capital of my own into it. I'm fortunate enough to get the business to profitability. Now we're sort of, hey, let's get to a certain point when we're really ready to take on outside capital. The M&A pitch is different. I, I don't feel like it's such a, here's the whole picture. Here's my customer, the problem I'm trying to solve. You're trying to calculate your TAM. Here's my management team and our capabilities. I feel like 
the management team is part of it when it comes to M&A, depending on the strategy, right? If the opportunity is to acquire a technology or, or some product, may not be the big emphasis. So the the rationale shifts or adjusts but by, by the deal, right? We could have a big emphasis on the people and saying, hey, there's a really talented group of AI engineers and it's going to be much, much faster for us to pay this premium and acquire this team as opposed to trying to hire and build it and get them figuring out how to work together. Or is it the customer base? Are we really trying to acquire this to keep growing our customer base and, and expand our market? I, I think that's where the, your narrative shifts, but it's, it is based off of that. Can you build that story on how this acquisitions and that value capture is going to help achieve the bigger company vision? Right. It sounds, I mean, when we focus on on narrative development for companies, whether they're early stage, and we don't do a lot of startup work at all, but you, you focus on a story arc. And, and I say that emotion trumps logic. So you got to come out of the gate and hook people with that, that emotional, like, why are we doing this? And then move into the logic, which supports the, the good feelings, the pixie dust. Whereas it sounds like, and I'm not, I don't have a lot of experience in putting together narratives for, for M&A, but it, it's much more, it sounds much more logical or you have to put together almost the, you, you leave the logic logically. If we got to get here, we got to do this. Bam. Yeah. I, I feel like the, the, you know, the industry still struggles to get apart from the financial aspect that, that ends up ultimately being a key emphasis. You have a lot of stakeholders and that's their primary focus. But I, I think the industry could evolve more around that story narrative to really emphasize that the picture on how this is going to come together from the different stakeholders that may not be in the room, the customers, the vendors, the employees. Yeah, I mean, if you can get a sense and, and take that perspective of from those other personas, you would get a good view of how they're going to how well this this deal is going to be received. And that ultimately gives you that greater sense of, is this the right deal to do? Gotcha. Yeah. And it, it is, you know, I just want to come back to the point. I, I forgot the stat, but if you look at M&A deals, the vast majority fail, fail to live up to what was what was promised and what was pitched. Do you know what that number is? You can check every consulting firm. It's a range that's usually yeah. 70 to 90%. I, I would challenge it. A bit, because the the question behind that is, what's the definition of failure? And did you know? Did we anticipate on capturing a hundred million value, and we captured ninety nine point nine nine nine, and it's a failure? What does that mean? And usually, when I talk to a number of these companies, it's we've intended to capture X amount of value in a year, and it took us longer. I mean, that's ultimately what it what it meant. It's not that the deal blew up and it was a failure, all the people quit, all the value was lost. No, and this happens. You, we, we get deal fever, we get uh, optimistic, you get the rosy glasses on, and your your financial model reflects that because that's how you build a business case to get the deal done, is you, you got to paint a great picture and every uh, great financial analyst out there knows how to make a chart that goes up and to the right. I think anybody, I think my kids know how to make a chart that goes up and to the right. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so you, you you fundamentally know how to do that and you, you get buy-in. That's a little bit of the challenge 
is um that that becomes sort of the 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 main thing and yeah the rest gets a little bit lost there yeah i want to switch gears i'm very curious to learn more about MA science and the product lines you've built up and also saving our 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 listeners uh, like a pitch on your company. I mean, it's, it's, it is fascinating. I encourage people to check it out, but how about building it? You talked about some trials and tribulations with your, your tech team initially and building software. And as a, a small entrepreneur, a small business, I think that is a, a challenge for, for, I mean, even, even you grow so many companies of finding the right tech talent who speak a language, which most management teams don't. What did you learn there and how have you been able to to overcome that because it looks sharp now? Yeah, it's people at the and it just I feel like fundamentally it applies whether it's tech or anything, marketing, sales, HR, I anything. It's it's really comes down to the people. You know, are you getting the talent that performs well but also the cultural components and how well they work with you and your style of working? So, and I, I've, I struggled a lot with this in the early days. I think there's this inherent nature to hire people that you like, but also that have similar traits that you do. And I was guilty of this in the early days. I, I often did this where I hired people that are very similar to myself and I'd end up with um, a shit show of a team that had a bunch of ideas that had a lot of energy, but didn't get anything done. And today, I'm fortunate to have a team of, I, I would classify as type A managers that are um, very different personalities, very detail-oriented, very conscious about their time management. They get things done. You know, They, they may not be come up with uh, the most creative ideas and things like that, but they know how to execute really, really well. So now I find myself in today's time hiring people that are very different than myself, but I can identify with as having skills that would be very complementary to what mine are. Hmm. And what about working with, specifically working with technology people, people who are writing code? And what's that process? And then how do you manage and measure success there? And, and, and I'm, I'm really asking, like, I want to know the details of how you do this. Do you do it in sprints? Do you do it? How how are you able to to ensure that you're going in the right direction and that a bunch of useless code isn't being written? It's so hard. I I remember I, I would product manage, and I when I finally got a CTO in, and he showed me why I'm not good at doing that. It, it, it is tough. I, I I think it if you can get in and just make sh- it's tough because you really got to make sure you're working with the right group. And I feel like you don't know what you don't know in the beginning. So if you can somehow come over that and either find a way to network with other entrepreneurs that may be a little bit ahead of where you're currently at, that would help. That would help to see if there's some ideas you can get to to validate. There's things that I didn't realize when I structured the early team. They were skilled at prototyping, but they weren't skilled at writing code for scale. Right. Very different. It ended up working out really well for us because we got to go through a high frequency of iterations at a low cost with the skill set to prototype. So we got to the point where we had paying customers and our site was breaking every day. And then we got a retool for scale with the team that, that really knew how to 
build things in a different manner that could allow us to scale that code. So you learn as you go. I just want to, I want to point that out that that is, is just such an important lesson because there's a very different set of skills to, to building a prototype, which you can quickly iterate on and it's not going to, going to break the system and see if something works and if it's resonating, it's very different than building on a foundation that, that can quickly scale up internationally. If something goes off, you're on, you know, I don't even know the terminology anymore, but they're very different skill sets. And I think companies can fail by going the ladder too soon. Yeah, absolutely. Because if we went for that top talent early, we went through so many, it took us a good year and a half to get in the right direction in terms of what we needed to build for the market. We would have ran out of cash and been gone a long time ago. So I so we we still do that. When if there's projects even now where we're initiating it, we're trying to find the cheapest way to prototype it, prove the model, validate it, and then we'll look at, hey, does this work? Can we can we actually and nowadays there's so many no code platforms where you could prototype something that actually scales pretty far on its own. And then yeah, it's a then you can get to that point where there's a clear case to rebuild it. We operate our online school, we licensed an LMS system and it's done well. It's it's got us to manage hundreds of students on that platform. Now we're shifting to grow through selling enterprise licenses to larger groups or corporations. And now we're running into the other challenges of how do you how do you manage all those different seats and, and corporate accounts? And that's like, okay, do we look at other solutions that are built for this or do we look at building something? So that's, I think that's a thing I, I would, if I'm looking at building something new, there's a lot of frameworks out there. There's a lot of these things that you could leverage those no code platforms. See if you can build prototypes on there. My favorite building companies are always the ones that start an Excel sheet. They've proved the model. You started a you know recruiting service, whatever it was, but you, you sort of did it pure manually and, and got it going. And then just kept reinvesting the capital back into it. Yeah, that, that reminds me of another, another interview we did with um, a gentleman, Nick Biak, Helsum. Uh, it's a payments company. And his whole thing was, as soon as I had enough cash flow to hire another person, I would. And so that was like, that's how he built his company. It was just, a, if he can get one more person, he will. And just kept on reinvesting that way and building the, the people talent, which has now built up a, a nice business. and. So many different ways to do this. And, you know, you bring it back to your experience of seeing into so many different companies and realizing that they're all so different, even if they're competing in the same space. That was my search for a long time was what's the perfect business to run. And I realized there there is none. They all got their pros and cons. Yeah. Yeah. That's really true, isn't it? Everybody would, you know, it'd be so nice to have my own business. It's like, it is, it is chaos all the time. You're always trying to, there's always something to be managing everything's changing. It's, uh, there's not a perfect business. I'm curious, something that I've put forward before to, to clients and to just people in general is that my belief is that all companies, especially public companies, need to be media companies now. You need to be producing media which draws your clients in. Going and part, it's part of the marketing process. It's changed. And becoming a media company and giving people the information they need to succeed is 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 a winning strategy. I think you've done this very well. And can can you expand on that and how that came to be? 
I had a friend that introduced me to podcasting about six years ago, and I didn't think that much of it. I thought, well, I can record interviews, then turn them into blogs and have some web content on my website, get some marketing going. It wasn't, there was no big anticipation. I never looked at the data. I think the second year I was doing it, somebody emailed me. I was like, oh, people are actually listening to this. This is cool. I look at the stats and it was a thousand downloads the first year. Second year, we had 7,000. Third year is 28,000. Fourth year is 120,000. Fifth year, 240,000. Now we're probably going to hit like 360-ish or something like that. So there is like that playing the long game, which worked for us. This did create a significant amount of tailwind because now we've got a well-recognized brand that when we reach out, people have heard of us. They've complimented our content that we put out. We have folks that reach out for various partnerships, inquiries that lead to them becoming customers. So it it has definitely amplified our business growth. If I were to do it again, I would have started with the media first because there's nothing that holds you back from the content, starting a podcast. And today that's where my personal brand resides is being a subject matter expert on mergers and acquisitions. And sometimes I, I have to check out an invitation. I remember earlier in the year to go speak about M&A integrations. And I was, I was laughing to myself, like I've never done an integration. I've done a bunch of deals. I know how to take them to close, but I've never integrated a company. I've interviewed a bunch of people about how to integrate a company. We have another executive in our company that actually is well-versed in that. So we, I forwarded the invitation along to him. Uh, but people do. They just, the fact that you, associate with other SMEs sort of makes you one. It actually does in some ways because we compile a lot of talk tracks based on these things that we've learned. So um, I I would go, I mean, 100%. If you can find a way, even when I talk to these undergrad college students, my challenge to them is to go start a podcast. Not for the sake you're going to get a bunch of fame and rewards for doing a podcast, but it, it gives you a lot of valuable skills. It teaches you how to speak well and communicate, especially if you're using these monitoring headsets because you listen to yourself while you talk and you become hyper-conscious about every filler word that you use. There, there's that portion of it. You'll speak better. You'll be able to connect with people that typically otherwise wouldn't give you the time. Because now instead of, hey, Corey, I'm new undergrad. I'm really interested in getting into this media career, thought it'd be great to connect with you and and get some advice. Well, I'm asking you for a favor versus I got this podcast that features the best of the best. How about I I feature you? Now it changes the dynamics. I'm I'm doing you a favor to get your message out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's just like, that's so much value right there in accelerating your networking. Uh, it is it, your ability to communicate. And because it helps you become, for me, it helps become a better listener. I was terrible at this. I talked about failing out of school for having a short attention span. Now I'm, I sit here with a notepad in front of me and take, uh, no, yeah, I take as much notes and, and it got a lot better at, at listening and following up. My only regret about this podcast, about our podcast here, is not starting it earlier and starting it 10 years ago. It's just been such an eye opener. It's been a wonderful experience. My God, is it a lot of work? But it's it's been a, a great experience. 
How, how long have you been doing a podcast for? Uh, we're, I think, three years in, 108 episodes in. Yeah. And had some, you know, had some fits and starts and, and learned a lot along the way, but made some really good relationships. And it's, it's spun into really positive outcomes. And, but it is a long tail game in the sense I, I that. I can't imagine like starting it today. I started a podcast with my daughter last year and it's a, and it's a fun one. It's a passion project to teach kids leadership lessons. And it's, uh, it's so much difficult to market and grow a new podcast today versus even maybe three years ago, but six years ago, you just, it was a bit of a land grab. You kind of got in, your SEO would do a lot of the work for you. We've never, we've only recently started advertising the podcast. We've grown hundred percent organic through people searching on iTunes to learn about M&A. Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's part of the whole media landscape. It's, it's very much maturing and it's becoming a pay to play kind of, kind of experience now. Where, but I still would argue that for companies, you got to be a media company, whether it be podcasts, webinars, video, blogs, getting that information out there and not just promoting someone, but actually sharing wisdom or finding ways to share wisdom that enables people to be better at what they're doing. It builds trust. And uh, I feel like I'm pumping, like, was it HubSpot kind of their inbound marketing 101 kind of thing but it is just really really powerful and and it uh it works it creates that tailwind as as you suggested yes i agree you gotta help people and then when you interact with them just listen really well yeah now i'm I'm curious if we were to bring it back to merging acquisitions and, and where you focus what topics are most of interest to you? Do you really feel passionate about speaking about within your industry? I, the ones I speak about are the ones I, I probably know the most about, like a lot of the front end stuff and thinking through how do you chase these opportunities down. But the ones that really interest me is when you see these points of value that gets created uh, and the ones that are the greatest value creation activities are the most difficult to capture, which is very much around how do you go to market? If you take an acquired business, go to market, and there's a lot of ways to shape your go to market. But that that's the thing where it's easy to say, hey, I'm going to cut a bunch of expenses. We're going to combine accounting departments and we're going to eliminate half the team. That's easy. Letting people go, that's easy to do. Canceling subscriptions, easy to do. But actually enabling that cross-selling, upselling motion through an acquisition is very difficult to do. And that's one I've been very interested in interviewing practitioners. I can't say I'm out speaking about the topic, but I'm very interested in learning about it. And I'm I'm potentially going to write a book about that topic area specifically, just because it seems to be the root when we look at that missed intention, intended value on a transaction seems to be rooted right around, we missed our go-to-market. You know, we, we thought we're going to come together and they're going to sell X. We're going to upsell Y, but that didn't end up happening. Okay, let's let's really figure out why, because there's a lot of things that need to come together to make that happen. There's a lot of underpinning operational processes and technologies that these companies have. They're distinctly unique for their go-to-markets and being able to bring that together in one or at least bridge it so that you can take that front-end customer experience and bring that together as fast as possible. So as soon as you get this deal done, 
you're you're bringing to market this this new go to market whether it's allowing you to sell more or sell bigger ticket items you you want to be able to do that sooner than later it's probably not discussed much but if you were to just think about you bring two companies together they've got sales teams doesn't matter the size and and one product's complementary to the other and can be you know cross sold the other is a nice upsell and and the synergies look great but even the friction created by putting those two sales teams together to say, okay, great, go sell this, but they've got two different CRMs. And then you make a choice to go with one and reconfigure and just doing that could cause so much friction within the sales team that you could miss the mark. Just And that's one aspect of it, not to mention the branding, the materials, the, the, the accounting after. And so how big is your book going to be? How many pages? Jeez. We have a third book we're publishing here in the next uh, three months or so on how to stand up an M&A function from scratch. I think that's going to end up a good 220 or so pages. But then, yeah, this one, I don't know. It depends. It depends. I thought it was going to be a little ebook, but uh, I think there's more substance than that. Oh, yeah. there's There's got to be a lot there. Huh, fascinating. What What keeps you busy outside of this? What do you read? What do you Where do you find your information? It's a lot of it's either I'm, I'm reading M&A books because maybe there's a podcast or interview related to it where I got recommended that book. Otherwise, it's something related to what I'm working on the company. I feel like when you build a business, it's a continuous journey that you get this core little team. Then you have to start standing up functions. You got the tech function. You built a marketing function. Right now, I'm building out a sales function. So I've been reading sales books. That's what I have on my desk right now. And it's fun. I think as long as you love that challenge to constantly learn from different angles. I'm working with our uh, one person HR function, and I got to stay on cue about those different things related to HR and, and know about it and why we have to do some of these things that everybody hates about HR. But it's fun. You just got to be interested in constantly learning, constantly taking on the challenge. Don't be like, I don't like doing that. That's okay. You've committed to this. This is a, discipline you've acquired the skill to look past it and have the ability to get comfortable doing those things that most would other find otherwise find uncomfortable doing but yeah if you kind of have that drive then it's and it's some parts are really really hard but you keep going the tech stuff we described you'll have some failures with that big time you'll hire some wrong engineers you'll blow through way more cash than you expected you'll find yourself at a brink of failure sick to your stomach unable to sleep at night and uh, having a tough time to beat yourself over. And, you know, over time, you, you'll get stronger and you get used to it and can tolerate it. So the thing I've always been my, reminded of is I think I, I saw some survey or something like reasons why startups fail. And it was giving up was was one of the reasons I saw. But I'm like, that's, that's technically it. That is, they don't need any other reasons. That's really what it ultimately comes down to. And I, I kept that, that thinking and turned into this mantra that, I'm not going to give up. Okay, you know, this and this happens. That's fine. But the giving up part isn't an option. And, uh, you know, that was my, the whole thinking. As long as we don't give up, we'll be fine. Yeah. Well, it looks like you're coming coming a long way. And a book that comes to mind for sales that I really enjoyed is uh, Jeb Blunt, Fanatical Prospecting. I had that book. I, I have that book. I've read like a third of it. I haven't read the whole thing. Yeah. No, I enjoyed it. There's a few good points. Qualified sales leader. Okay. Yeah, look, That's you are in the sales, sales leaders. Yeah, right. yeah. Uh, one thing I really liked about that book, though, was the point that if you're going to make a sale, you're going to have to interrupt somebody's day. 
Easy as that. Get over it. And just pick up the phone. Start start dialing for dollars. It's uh yeah, I mean, probably, you know, more uncomfortable than than having converse, difficult conversations around tech or HR or any of that kind of stuff is picking up the phone and doing cold calls. It is it's a tough one. It takes a, a special kind of person. But it sounds like you used to do that. Yeah, I, a lot of times. That's how you found these companies to sell and you had to get a hold of the owner. They were hard. I, I remember back in the day, it was just phones. There was no email or anything. You only had a phone. And I would have this list of all the companies and their CEO and their phone number. And that's every single morning I got in the office at 7 a.m. and just dialed down, dialed down, and left voicemails. Back then, that's what people did. You leave a voicemail and they'd call you back if you left a good voicemail. And I would do that for two hours straight. Sometimes you get a call and keep doing that two hours straight. Then the rest of the day, you're just waiting for some of those calls to call you back and getting those conversations or when you get breaks in between, call more people. Jason, the, the points you made about iterating your sales pitch on those calls earlier in our, our interview there, I really, really like that. Like phone somebody up, is your business for sale? Click, you know, phone somebody up. Would you billing or what was the the, the point you made? Uh, how much would you sell your business for? You know, just changing your message there and finding your your the the conversion point is so huge. Yeah, I think you had a good point with the the prospecting book you mentioned. If you if you have your framing down, like you made up your mind, you have to interrupt people. Period. If you're going to make the sales, so you get over it. I think when you can frame what you're trying to do in a very objective way, like hey, I. We're doing event planning actually right now for an event in a couple of weeks. And so the marketing team's reaching out and I'm like, well, we're having this event. It's, are you going to go? Yes or no. And it's just pretty objective here. I know we're going to email and people aren't going to respond. Uh, I need you to pick up the phone yeah. and let them know, hey, Kisan's in town. We're hosting a social. It's going to be a lot of the who's who in our industry thought it'd be Good, great for you to come and meet some of the other folks and grow your network, right? What's in it for me or them? And uh, get the yes or no. Like if it's a no, great, not a big deal. But you at least want to get that yes. You don't want to be ghosted and not get a response. When you get very objective about that, then you can pursue and say, look, I just I just need to know. Is this something you're interested in or not? You know, it's, it's fine if you're not. Maybe a little feedback to understand why is always helpful. I had a client that was always, he was an immigrant that was highly successful and it was always surprising about his success and how he achieved it. And it, it was the thing he taught me was like, why no? You know, you guy went to the bank to buy his first property and got turned down. And he said, hey, can I take you out for lunch? I just wanted to, you, you know, take you out for lunch and, and chat a little bit. I said, look, the only thing I want to know is why no? And the guy over lunch, of course, he's like, hey, here's this, 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 this. I said, okay, thank you. You know, same thing again, next time it happens. And he kept doing it. Next thing you know, he started learning. And when I worked for him, I was managing $150 million of property, just one small subset of a large portfolio he had. What a, what All, a cool story. Yeah. Huh. But it was always that. It was just like, why no? And even I, the team I, I tried to expose to is, can you build that discipline and take that feedback and solicit it and beat yourself up for it in a good, positive way? Like, I don't care about the positive. I don't want to feel like, oh, I did a great job. Tell me all the little things. I thrive off of that that I could improve on. Let me challenge myself to get better and really build it like I'm training as an athlete to be the best I can at what I'm trying to do here. And even right now, rebuilding the sales team. Let's rebuild our sales process. Let's, I'll let you tear my demos apart and tell me how terrible of a job I did. 
and uh, that's how we, we want to build that in so you, it, it gets institutionalized. You take feedback, you keep improving from it, and if you can apply that. So important, like building that constructive criticism and actually a, like an environment to allow that for to, to happen within, the, within a culture. I think that's really important. I think conflict, positive conflict is really important as well to hear like, no, I think your pitch sucked and here's why. It's, you know, it's not a personal statement. It's like, how can we collectively be better? I think that that's something that is, that's how companies get better. And I just wanted to reflect too on, you know, why no, I remember the most profitable sales call I ever did, cold call. I got no four times. And then my, my response was, let me just email you. And then I was able to email a couple of examples of work we've done and results we've had. And it turned into one of the longest, most profitable relationships I've had. It's been, it's been awesome. But it was a very uncomfortable cold call that started with, uh, I think it was four no's. So go figure. Yeah, it's, uh, it's all persistence. Right on. Well, let's, uh, let's wrap this up. We're hitting an hour. Any final thoughts for our audience before we, we break? Final thoughts for the audience. We've hit a lot of these themes. We hit on discipline. We've hit on a lot of themes around discipline. I think the, the empathy one we touched on, but that's probably one I would emphasize the most is you do get caught up with your own agenda, intentions. And the thing that I found that really drives things forward more than anything is when you can be dumb, as in like get down to zero, get your mind to a place that you can assume what you know is wrong or that you know nothing so that you're proactively and truly listening in the conversation, not those little thoughts and ideas of what you're trying to pitch or any of that shit, get it all cleared out and try to understand what is Corey thinking? How's he feeling? Why does he feel that way? You'll enter the conversation when you can really understand someone's goals and their challenges. And from there, that's when you'll be able to find these ways you can align yourself to help that person achieve those goals, overcome those challenges. I, I think that fundamentally applies with any business and the way you serve your customer. The more you can empathize with them. Same thing with M&A. It's, we see it as a tough process today because it's a big magnitude of change management that happens once you acquire a business. But can you empathize with that person and help them say, hey, I get it. This isn't stuff. You, you didn't sign up to come work at our company. You signed up to work at this company. You don't want to be part of a big company. Yeah. You know, just that little acknowledgement goes a long ways. I think that's where you can ha have people really open up and get, uh, make a lot more progress that way. hundred percent. That's, uh, I, I didn't expect the, the theme of our conversation to go this path and to really emphasize the, the people component of an M and a deal. That's what makes the financial numbers work at the end of the day. And so I think that's great advice. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm rebooting our sales process now. It's like, can you empathize with the prospect and demonstrate that and as you demo your solutions? Awesome. Well, Kisan, thanks so much. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, Corey. Enjoy the conversation. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. 
You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.